it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters, and Odyssey as well. Today, my guest is Toad. Uh, and if you've been following the channel, you know me and Toad lately have been doing a live reading series on Democracy the God That Failed. So that's why he's here with me again today. Uh, I do want to let you guys know how this shtick works. Uh, if you're watching the third, it's a live stream. Uh, if not, you're caught it publicly or you're a patron. Um, and if you want to be able to have access to it in the meantime, while well, it's not public, because I do bring it down, uh, like basically paywall immediately after the live stream. Uh, if you don't have access in the meantime, you're a patron at patreon.com. It's just no way it was a 2020. I have multiple different levels that do different stuff, but the lowest level two bucks that gives you that. Uh, and you know, the highest level is 20 and, uh, that that's the sponsor level. And the sponsors I have are Mikel Thorpe of the expat money show. Uh, he has a podcast about, you know, if you want to learn about getting the hell out of Dodge, get, you know, passports, uh, stuff like that, different tax things you can do as so far as being in different countries, dual citizenship, stuff of the like. Uh, he also has a business too. So to go check that out. So if you just want to like, you know, check it out a little bit, you can go to the podcast. And if you're really serious about it, definitely go hit him up in his business and uh, get going on that. I also have Jeremy, uh, who has a uh, Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash raising liberty. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes, and then I have Toad, uh, my guest. He's a he's a sponsor as well. Uh, me and him are both um, both co-hosts on Tower Power Hour. That's the show we have. Uh, so you should go check that out. So where you can find me and Toad, and you can follow Toad at tph underscore Toad. That is until we me and him both both hopefully get our accounts back from old Elon. But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get. Oh yeah, and don't forget uh, toplops.com. You associate at checkout. You get my merch, a bunch of other shows merch, and then other you know art that he has there that he's made into merch. Uh, definitely highly suggest it. Uh, I love Top. He's the man. And with that, let's get to him here. What's up, oh, man? Yeah. What's up? Not much, dude. You ready to do this? It's starting to get a little bit juicier now. This is, oh, a, yeah. you know, it started dry, and it's starting to get a little bit good. It's, uh, the big juicy booty is coming up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, I don't – not really any – any small talk to be had here? You ready to just go ahead and get right into it? <laughs> That's right. Just Elon, give us our accounts back. Let's go. Yes, please. Let's do it. Yeah, if you're now watching this, show, Elon. Baby. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. We're in the time preference chapter and in the section government government growth and the process of decivilization from monarchy to democracy. Yeah. Every government, and that means every agency that engages in continual inst institutionalized property rights violations is by its nature a territorial monopolist. There can no, be no free entry into the businesses of expropriations. Otherwise, soon nothing would be left that could be expropriated, and any form of institutionalized expropriation would thus become impossible. Under the assumption of self-interest, every government will use this monopoly of expropriation to its own advantage in order to maximize its wealth and income. Hence, every government should be expected to have an inherent tendency toward growth. And in maximizing its own wealth and income by means of expropriation, every government represents a constant threat to the process of civilization, of falling time preferences and increasingly wider and longer provision, an expanding source of decivilizing forces. So, uh, adding to that, I mean, basically that's the whole point of you know, the incentives of governmental structure is for it to grow. Uh, and, right. you know, which is kind of one of his main points in this is they all are have a tendency to grow, but just different structures of government, uh, you know, grow in different ways or at different rates. And, yeah. you know, he, you know, everyone accuses Hop. A lot of people who don't know Hop well accuse him of being a monarchist. And it's the point he frequently makes. 
He's not a monarchist. His only point is he thinks this governmental structure uh, is does not uh, splurge as much in the de-civilizing uh, force so far as like something like democracy does. So, yep, that is correct. And yeah, we're he was explaining what time preference is essentially in the first section of this chapter, and we're continuing on that where he's now applying it more to government, which he started getting into prior to this in the chapter, but he's getting further into it now. So yeah, I mean, there's not much to add there. He's saying that, yeah, the government is a territorial monopoly, which we know, so. Yes. However, not every government prospers equally and produces decivilizing, God's annoying word, uh, forces of the same strength. Different forces of government lead to different degrees of decivilization. Nor is every form of government and every sequence of government forms equally probable. Uh, we just covered this. Uh, mm -hmm. Given that all expropriation creates victims, and victims cannot be replied, uh, relied upon to cooperate while being victimized, an agency that institu institutionalizes expropriation must have legitimacy. A majority of the non-governmental public must regard the government's action as just or at least as fair enough not to be resisted so as to render the victim defenseless. Right. And I had pointed out, uh, yeah, last week when we were doing this, that he brings up this concept of legitimacy of the government, where I think what he really means is perceived legitimacy, since we, they're not actually legitimate. And they're, as he points out, you know, throughout the book, they are uh, funded by theft. So yeah. uh, they're not legitimate, but people have to perceive them as legitimate. And he's going to get into why people have a tendency to uh, perceive uh, democratic government as legitimate more uh, than they do have a tendency to perceive a monopolist or mon not mon monarchistic government as uh, legitimate. So he's going to be getting into that. Yes. And uh, obviously the degree to which the populace or people on an individual level uh, render legitimacy towards some governmental structure is going to essentially increase these decivilizing uh, forces he's talking about, essentially, you know, kind of decaying, uh, uh, growth or um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but uh, I guess economic growth, whatever, or social growth, uh, and essentially deteriorating civilization. So, yeah, uh, like st yeah, stagnation of economic growth, I guess you could say, and uh, yeah, reducing uh, the amount of production. Yeah, like for example, like Weimar, Weimar Republic. Like you look at them, and they, you know, they they went to shit. They essentially their government over overplayed its hand. It uh, it was printing money way too fast, uh, and you know they just got to the point where their money was worthless, and you know they had no value. Everything they essentially their government, you know, uh, was the the governments are basically parasites, and this parasite ate too much, and you know killed essentially kind of killed its host. So right. yeah, so whereas you know the way Hop would probably put it is something like different types of governments. Uh, are maybe smarter parasites that only leech off of you a little bit, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. and the, and and you don't and you don't get lied to and told that no, 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 that's not a tick on you. That's a, I don't know, gives you magic powers or some bullshit. Like at least in certain forms of government, you can be like, no, that's that's a fucking parasite. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I mean, they need to have the production to uh, precede the predation that they uh, perform. So. Uh, in a way there is like, they need some sort of like balance there. Like they can't completely stop everybody from producing because then they'd have nothing to steal. But uh, as Hoppe said, uh, governments do have a tendency to grow anyway and continue to grow. And then that is why they tend to wind up collapsing. Yeah. 
Yet, acquiring legitimacy is not an easy task. For this reason, it is not likely, for instance, that a single world government would initially arise. Instead, all governments must begin territorially small. Nor is it likely, even for as small a population as that of a clan, a tribe, a village, or a town, that a government will initially be democratic. For who would not trust a specific known individual, especially in as sensitive a matter as that of a territorial monopoly of expropriation, than an anonymous, democratically elected person? Having to begin small, the original form of government is typically that of personal rule, of private ownership of the government apparatus of compulsion, i.e. monarchy. Yeah, so there is kind of a lot there because he's essentially getting at the fact that um, a monarchy is going to be more similar to like some sort of decentralized governments, essentially, like a, a smaller government. So yeah. he's getting at that. And we know Hoppe is a fan of uh, promoting decentralization as well and having a bunch of yeah, smaller uh, territories because it's easier for the people to you know not be ruled over by it's you know like somebody's not going to have like a huge amount of power like that and he's also getting at the fact that in a like democracy in a large centralized uh system like that you, you are so far removed from who the ruler actually is yeah yeah in every society of any degree of complexity specific individuals quickly acquire elite status as a result of having diverse talents Owing to achievements of superior wealth, wisdom, bravery, or a combination thereof, particular individuals command respect and their opinions and judgment possess natural authority. As an outgrowth of this authority, members of the elite are most likely to succeed in establishing a legitimate territorial monopoly of compulsion, typically via the monopolization of judicial services and law enforcement. Because they owe their privileged position to their personal elitist character and achievements, they will consider themselves and be regarded by their fellows as a monopoly's personal owner. So the point being mm. uh, at this point, essentially saying in a, you know, especially starting out with civilizations, especially smaller ones, usually people will just naturally you know, kind of locate, you know, natural leaders or people who are better at this. And they will essentially, uh, in a certain way, get this legitimacy from the people to where mm. they let them have limited uh, uh, control of some sort. Uh, you know, right. Well, he, he is also uh, pointing out that in like a smaller uh, governmental system like this, where people know each other, or whatever, they know like what these people are best at. So there are these natural hierarchies and you essentially have more like natural elites, let's say. So people that are yeah. better at something tend to be the leader at that something. Whereas uh, in the case of like a larger democratic system that is no longer the case and there's more of a tendency to have um like very uh terrible elites let's say uh unimpressive elites and people that are not legitimate elites really like they're elites just because they are evil essentially they want to seize that power in most of the cases yeah, and uh, Hoppe talks about natural elites a lot. Anyone who knows Hoppe, mm -hmm. like, has followed him somewhat, knows it's a thing he brings up frequently. And I, I just do want to bring the point that in this, someone might uh, conclude that, oh, he's saying, uh, you know, essentially saying that's a good thing, that in a monarchy, these people will get this per perception of legitimacy and essentially mm -hmm. take rule, and that these will be the natural elites. I would think uh, maybe he would say in certain senses they're natural elite, but I would surmise he would say they're not they're more of a natural elite than like a Democrat, like an elite in our system, mm. like a democratic system. Yeah. But 
in a pure uh, free society, you would have even more impressive natural elites. Uh, it, 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 right. you know, that's, so it's, it's not to say that the ideal natural elite is the monarch or some shit. Like you're just no, saying, they're closer to the ideal natural elite than what we currently exist under. Exactly. Yep. All right. Democratic rule in which the government apparatus is considered public, public property administered by regularly elected officials who do not personally own and are not viewed as owning the government, but as its temporary caretakers or trustees typically only follows personal rule in private government ownership. Because masses or majorities cannot possibly possess any natural authority, this being a personal individual trait, democratic governments can acquire legitimacy only unnaturally, most typically through war or revolution. Only in activities such as war and revolution do masses act in concert and do victory and defeat depend on mass effort. And only under exceptional circumstances such as these can mass majorities gain the legitimacy needed to transform government into public property. Right. So, yep. yeah, he's saying that at that point where you have this large democratic or centralized government of some kind like that, that those people that are in power have essentially seized it. Like they have not gained it legitimately at all, whereas in a totally free society, like you said, you would have people that are – the leaders are kind of the natural leaders that have risen to that uh, risen to that uh, position because uh, of some uh, legitimate reason. Like they are actually like a natural elite. They're better at that something. Um, yeah. And monarchy is somewhere in between those two and is closer to uh, mimicking the uh, like private property scenario, if you want to call it that. And then he's uh, about to get uh, at, which I think I mentioned either last week or the week before that, he's about to start getting at how the people that are in power in like a democratic system are temporary caretakers, meaning that they're, they're just going to be in that position and then be gone. And they don't really have anything to like pass down, whereas in like a monarchy, which is a more private or somewhat private system at least you have like a a ruler who's still trying to preserve something that they're going to pass down to their heirs or something like that whereas in the the democratic system it's just like well fuck it like i'm just gonna spend everything that i've stolen yeah and that seems to be how it tends to work out mm -hmm. um these two forms of government private or public ownership of government uh, monarchy or democracy have systematically different effects on social time preference and the attendant process of civilization. And with the transition from personal to democratic rule in particular, contrary to conventional wisdom, the decivilizing de forces inherent in any form of government are systematically strengthened. The defining characteristic of private government ownership and the reason of a personal ruler's relatively lower degree of time preference is that the expropriated resources and the monopoly privilege of future expropriation are individually owned. The right. expropriated resources are added to the ruler's private estate and treated as if they were part of it, and the monopoly privilege of future expropriation is attached as a title to this estate and leads to an instant increase in its present value. Most importantly, as a private owner of the government estate, the ruler is entitled to pass his possessions on to his personal heir. He may, he may sell, rent, or give away part or all of his privileged estate, and he may personally appoint or dismiss every administrator employee of his state. So mm -hmm. what he's getting at here is essentially in a monarchy, you essentially have a pseudo-private right or private property rights sort of thing. 
I mean, it's obviously we wouldn't consider that to be a proper, uh, you know, way to use it. But in a certain sense, they are, uh, as on an individual level, uh, they are taking, uh, essentially becoming, uh, you know, coercers of uh, others, uh, private, private property. But the way it's individual to them. So in a certain sense, it's almost like they are sort of behaving along the same pr typical private property rights. Whereas in a public system to where no one person is given this idea of this is yours, right. they, they be, they are given everyone shit and treats it, treats it like it's everyone's shit essentially because mm, yeah, like it's like, yeah, they, they're going to be able to pull some stuff out of it, but there's this, they, they don't really have anything to gain by its larger welfare essentially. Right. Even though a monarchy is not, uh, really private property. Uh, yes. you, it is, you know, you have, it's like pseudo private property. Right, one individual or one family has stolen that property from others. Whereas yeah, in the democratic uh, system, it's yeah. Like a collective. Yeah. Right, it's it's almost like if you stole someone's house and then no one ever did anything about it. Like mm. technically you are not the rightful owner of that house, but you're still behaving as if you are. And you are, you know, essentially sort of interacting in the same way like a normal person. Let's say in a situation you take over the mortgage or whatever. So you're you're doing you're taking over all the normal responsibilities in a lot of ways. Obviously, this isn't a perfect metaphor, but I, I think it works somewhat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, this uh, on to you now. You can do these two pages, and I'll, I'll do the next one. Right, and in the uh, public ownership uh, scenario, uh, it you essentially can't like determine who owns that stuff at all. Whereas at least in the mm. uh, like monarchy scenario, uh, even though that owner of that stuff is illegitimate, you know who yeah. the owner of that property. Really and, is. And, and, so. and while we think it's ultimately illegitimate, the people at large see it as legitimate. So in a certain sense, in a functional sense, it basically behaves like private property. <laughs> but right. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, although they see the public uh, government as uh, legitimate as well, they perceive yeah. it as such, uh, which is a problem. And you, you run into, yeah, the tragedy, the commons situation. All right. Uh, the institution of private government ownership systematically shapes the incentive structure confronting the ruler and distinctly influences his conduct of government affairs. Assuming no more than self-interest, the ruler tries to maximize his total wealth, i.e. the present value of his estate and his current income. He would not want to increase current income at the expense of a more than proportional drop in the present value of his assets. Furthermore, because acts of current income acquisition invariably have repercussions on present asset values, reflecting the value of all future expected asset earnings discounted by the rate of time preference, private ownership in and of itself leads to economic calculation and thus promotes farsightedness. So he's saying that in the monarchy scenario, you do still have some form of um, like being able to sort of price something or do the economic calculation. Uh, whereas in the uh, public scenario, which is essentially socialism, or, I mean, you could argue it's even, uh, it could be like a form of communism or something like that. Uh, in that situation, then you're really running into the, um, the situation where you have the economic calculation problem. Yeah, which I believe is uh, was that Hayek that first talked about that? It's either Hayek or Mises, I forget. It's one of the two. Yeah, um, I know it's older, so it'd be Hayek or Mises. 
Yeah, That's where in, in that scenario, you can't like come up with like prices at all. Whereas in the, uh, at least in the system of monarchy, you kind of don't entirely lose that uh, ability to do the economic calculation. I really want to say it's Mises, but I don't know. It might be. <laughs> now it's bugging me. <laughs> it, could, it, could be, it could be both. Someone's in the chat. Look it up. <laughs> uh, all but, right. Well, all right. while this is true of private ownership generally, in the special case of private ownership of government, it implies a distinct uh, moderation with respect to the ruler's drive to exploit his monopoly privilege of expropriation, for acts of expropriation are by their nature parasitic upon prior acts of production by the non-governmental public. Where nothing has first been produced, nothing can be expropriated. And where everything has been expropriated, all future production will come to a shrieking halt. Yes, that's what uh, real quick. I do want to pause. Like essentially, like I said before, all he's saying is he's saying, yes, monarchies are still parasitic. They're just, you know, they are a little bit more moderate in their parasitism. So but go on. Right. Or shrieking halt. I don't know if I said screeching yeah. halt, but shrieking halt. Hence, a private owner of government, a king, would avoid taxing his subjects so heavily as to reduce his future earning potential to the extent that the present value of his estate, his kingdom, um, would actually fall, for instance, or would, uh, sorry, would actually fall, for instance. Instead, to preserve or even enhance the value of his personal property, he would systematically restrain himself in his taxing policies. For the lower the degree of taxation, the more productive the subject population will be, and the more productive the population, the higher value, the higher the value of the ruler's parasitic monopoly of expropriation will be. He will use his monopolistic privilege, of course. He will not not tax. But as the government's private owner, it is in his interest to draw parasitically on a growing, increasingly productive and prosperous non-government economy, as this would always and without any effort on his part also increase his own wealth and prosperity tax rates would thus tend to be low, right? So he's saying that uh, because you have to, um, like, to be this parasite, you have to uh, have that production to uh, steal uh, and the monopoly, uh, the king would uh, be more, uh, I, I like how he's talking about how uh, these uh, people in governments, like everybody's still behaving in their self-interest. So it would be in the self-interest of the king to still want to increase his own wealth. But he knows that by uh, that in order to do that, his he needs his subjects to still be producing and creating more wealth. And then he has more to uh, steal. Whereas even though I, that is still the case when you have another form of government, like a democracy, it's like they, uh, they sort of... Uh, it like doesn't really become in their own in their own self interest anymore to uh, care about that as much and yeah which um, you, oh sorry you you can apply yeah. this to uh, a lot of people like to bring up things like uh, when you set term limits and really the 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 best point I mean I guess you could argue it, you know from a different way but in a certain sense you're fucking up the time preference so you could probably take a collapsitarian approach and say yeah lower time preference knowing it's going to make things worse but or not lower time but lower um, uh, term limits, uh, yeah. I think, I think it's a time preference, but, um, term yeah, limits, yeah. yeah, lowering the term limits, uh, making them smaller is actually going to raise the time preference because now, uh, right. let's say you say they can only do two terms. It's like, okay, well now you're limiting them to, let's say eight years, uh, depending on what the thing is, uh, mm. at, at the most. And so it's like, they know they have eight years as opposed to a King that knows he has a lifetime 
and if he cares about his uh, progeny and a lifetime of them and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So he's thinking way further in the future as opposed to someone who's a temporary caretaker and is just trying to get there as well they can. Exactly. And you can reductio ad absurdum that in both ways. You could say the king is going to have this infinite legacy of his uh, offspring, whereas you could take a a government term limit and you could say this person's term limit is – a minute or a second or something. So what do you think yeah. they're going to do when they're in power? And they know they have that really short period of time that they're in power. Well, yeah, they're, you know, they're going to spend that time trying to do as much as they can in their own self-interest in that short amount of time. Yeah. All right. Uh, further, it is in a personal ruler's interest to use his monopoly of law courts and order police for the enforcement of the pre-established private property law. With the sole exception of himself, for the non-government public and all of its internal dealings, that is, he will want to enforce the principle that all property and income should be acquired productively and or contractually. And accordingly, he will want to threaten all private rule transgressions as crimes with punishment. The less private crime there is, the more private wealth there will be, and the higher will be the value of the ruler's monopoly of taxation and expropriation. I didn't skip anything when I started that paragraph no. today. I don't think so. All right. In fact, a private ruler will not want to learn, will not want to lean exclusively on tax revenue to finance his own expenditures. Rather, he will also want to rely on productive activities and allocate part of his estate to the production and provision of normal goods and services with the purpose of earning its owner a normal market sales revenue. I, I like that last thing because that's one I think people don't think about. The mm-hmm. idea that it actually makes sense, and I, I mean, I don't know any historical examples, but I guarantee you there were probably plenty of kings that had some sort of private something. I mean, obviously they were the kings, so they were able to like favor their industry or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But it they uh, it allows them to essentially have a somewhat quasi free market uh, uh, venture of their own, and it even further incentivizes them to have a fair, a somewhat fair system, so that in and you know the system at large should be economically productive because it would mm-hmm. it would it, you know it would benefit them. It also makes it the more private you know somewhat uh, legitimate uh, industry they can do on their own. The less they have to tax their citizens, and the the more they're able to maintain their perception of legitimacy because they're not uh, you know putting on too hard of a yoke on the people. Uh, it, uh, this 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 is a good paragraph. Right? I really like this one. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think at some point he does bring up like, oh, the king might like actually like hire like certain people privately, essentially, and have like private. Uh, I don't know, like farmers farming some of his land have private security, things like that. And it is, it, again, it like mimics uh, private uh, industry more so than like a democratic mm-hmm. government would where they are, you know, using like only tax revenue to do that and things like that. Um, yeah. And in that paragraph, he also brought up that uh, the, uh, mo- the ruler in a monarchy has more of an incentive to enforce private property law to keep his, um, like the people in his uh, state, I guess, uh, more productive so that he has more to steal. Yeah. I mean, being as he has a long, longer time horizon, right. uh, you know, having a, you know, a, a, an efficient, you know, free or fair system, which is typically going to correlate more to like a private property type system. Uh, it, that, that's the best way to, you know, achieve maximum gains for the long term. So, um, 
Right. And I think you will find that uh, where you said that, you know, he is maintaining sort of his sense of legitimacy by like not being so crazy as to just, uh, you know, just put the hammer down, taxing, you know, everything from his constituents and whatever. Whereas in the democratic system, as we're seeing right now uh, in our country, we're seeing that the government is like definitely losing their sense of legitimacy in the eyes of a lot of the public. So, yeah. Moreover, private ownership of government implies moderation for yet another systematic reason. All private property is by definition exclusive private private property. He who owns property is entitled to exclude everyone else from its use and enjoyment, and he is at liberty to choose with whom, if anyone, he is willing to share in its usage. Oh, we're getting to the fun part. This is where we're probably going to make some of the like maybe the like left libertarian. I mean, not that we're, they're probably already don't like this at all already, but this is going to be even more so something they don't like. They don't like it just because it's him, but yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, the whole King thing, a lot of people get upset by that. But typically a private property owner will include his family and exclude all others. Mm -hmm. The property becomes family property with him at the head of the family, and every non-family person will be excluded from using family property except as invited guests or as paid employees or contractors. Right. In the case of government, this exclusive character of private property takes on a special meaning. In this case, it implies that everyone but the ruler and his family is excluded from benefiting from non-productively acquired property and income. Only the ruling family, and to a minor extent, its friends, employees, and business partners, shares in the enjoyment of tax revenues and can lead a parasitic life. The position as head of government and of the government estate is typically passed on within the ruling family such that no one outside the king's family will re- can realistically hope to become the next king. While entrance into the ruling family might not be closed entirely, it is highly restrictive. It might be possible to become a family member through marriage. However, the larger the ruling family, the smaller each member's share in the, government totals, in the government's total confiscations will be. Mm-hmm. Hence, marriage typically will be restricted to members of the ruler's extended family. Only in exceptional cases will a member of the ruling family marry a complete outsider. Even if this occurs, a family member by marriage will not normally become the head of the ruling family. All right, I thought he was getting to like some of the border stuff, but I'm, I think he'll probably get to no, it. No, not like, yet. But uh, yeah. but I love uh, I do love the fact that he's talking about the um, like the ruling family in, in the uh, monarchy uh, system is actually practicing uh, like disassociation. Essentially, they're keeping a lot of people out, which yeah. then means that you have fewer people who are actually members of the ruling class. You have way fewer of those parasites whereas in the democratic system you have a large number of people that are yeah even which though it, it, it is still way more people that are you know outside of the government than in the government but still in the the monarchy it's like very few people that are uh, actually in the uh in the government and he, yeah. as we mentioned already he's talking about how they're actually incentivized to be more family oriented in the system of monarchy as well which yeah. is uh lower time preference so yeah, this kind of demonstrates one of the ways that uh, monarchies kind of slowly degrade, though, too, because I don't remember where I read it. Maybe it was in this or something else, but I remember reading, like, one of the things, and it's kind of like you look at, like, England, and, like, in a certain sense, they're a monarchy, but not really, and this is kind of what's happened to a lot of monarchies, and uh, when he's talking about monarchy, he's meaning, like, monarchy, monarchy. He's not talking, mm-hmm. like, these parliamentary monarchies. Like, I mean, he'll probably address it at some point in this book, how they're, like, a quasi-version, but, like, say something... The point I'm getting at is like say something like a parliamentary one. What's happened over time is is with the the kings is over time they started having bringing more people into that fold of mm-hmm. like oh well now I have this advisor and I'm going to kind of give him these rights and 
and so on and so forth. And it kind of slowly expands. So, cause even though it is a monarchy and we're making the case, it's still better. It's still not perfect. And it's still right. going to have the same tendency as, as, as uh, other governments to expand. And yeah. this is kind of what I'm talking about here is expanding and mutating into different forms of government by, you know, getting different advisors, getting this person does that, slowly being like, well, I don't know, maybe as a king, I don't need this power. I'll pass this off to the people, the parliament, whatever, you know, shit like that. So, and then it's slowly, that's how it shifts. Yeah. So, so in England, you have like the monarchy that's still there where the head of the monarchy is kind of a figurehead, although they still obviously have power and they're a member of the ruling class for sure. But then in addition to that, they have, you know, their parliamentary system. They have essentially like a Western democracy on top of the monarchy that they have. So yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it kind of sucks. Yep. Owing to these restrictions regarding entrance into government and the exclusive status of the individual ruler and his family, private government ownership stimulates the development of a clear class consciousness on the part of the governed public and promotes opposition and resistance to any expansion of the government's power to tax. Mm-hmm. A clear-cut distinction between the few rulers and the many ruled exists, and there is little to or no risk or chance of a person's moving from one class to the other. Confronted with an almost insurmountable barrier to upward mobility, solidarity among the ruled, their mutual identification as actual or potential victims of governmental or government violations of property rights is strengthened, and the ruling class's risk of losing its legitimacy as a result of increased taxation is accordingly heightened. Yeah, this is like, this is probably one of my best, my favorite points when it comes to like why oh yeah. it's better. But this is on. one of the greatest points in the book. Yeah, this is maybe one of the best paragraphs in the entire book, and it like almost sums up like the best points throughout the entire book, all in that one paragraph where you have in the system of monarchy, there's way clearer of a distinction between the ruling class and the ruled. So the ruled are going to tend to uh, want to push back more, so the ruling class can't get away with as much. Whereas in the uh, democratic system, not only like those lines are blurred, but also there's that barrier to entry situation where in the monarchy, most people know, hey, I'm never going to be part of the ruling class. But in the democratic system, everybody thinks they can be part of the ruling class. and It is going to incentivize like some of the worst people to want to try to do that and to get into positions of power and things like that. And because the lines are blurred, everybody, you know, thinks that myth, oh, like, we are like ruling ourselves essentially, which is not the case at all. Yeah, just like so, Rothbard said, the Jews didn't kill themselves. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, so yeah, great points in that paragraph. Yeah. All right, go on. It's your turn now. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the class consciousness among the ruled exerts a moderating effect not only on the government's internal policies, but also on its conduct of external affairs. Every government must be expected to pursue an expansionist foreign policy. The larger the territory and the greater the population over which a monopoly of confiscation extends, the better off those in charge of this monopoly will be. Because only one monopoly of expropriation can exist in any given territory, this expansionary tendency must be expected to go hand in hand with a tendency towards centralization with ultimately only one worldwide government remaining, Ah, the globalists. Moreover, because centralization implies reduced opportunities for interterritorial migration of voting with one's feet against one's government and in favor of another, the process of intergovernmental competition of expansive elimination should be expected to generate simultaneous tendencies toward increasingly higher rates of government expropriation 
and taxation, right? So he is saying the governments are going to tend to try to expand the territory over which they have dominance because then there are going to be more people that they can uh, confiscate the wealth from. And having more people, you know, there's going to be more overall wealth in that state and they have more that they can take from them. But what that also means is, and Hoppe is definitely a decentralizationist. Like I said, he's going to, he's saying that you're going to have this more centralized government that is reigning over a larger and larger territory. And what that means is it's harder for the people to move somewhere else to uh, vote with their feet, essentially, which I think is what you were saying about borders and like yeah. go to like a different state where they have a more preferable government uh, in their eyes. Uh, so, right. In this uh, situation, like when you have, uh, yeah, like a centralized government, you just can't do that anymore. Whereas when you have yeah. a bunch of decentralized governments, those governments actually have to compete with each other for the people, which you could argue is what we're seeing right now with like California versus Florida or California and New York versus Florida and Texas, a century of kind of mass migration out of places like California and New York because of all the lockdowns and COVID policy and shit like that. And people are sick of it. Hey, we're going to vote with our feet. We prefer Ron DeSantis to Gavin Newsom. So we're going to go to Florida, which yeah. is exactly what I think also the kind of one of the points he's making in that paragraph too is to kind of build off the previous paragraph of the idea of the clear cat class consciousness kind of is this limiting factor that makes it so they kind of can't just do whatever they want mm -hmm. kind of moderates this effect of uh, government expansion. So they're not able to do it to quite the same degree, which we'll get into later, right. like why it kind of moderates things like war uh, makes it so that mm -hmm. if they do want to acquire territory, it has to be done peacefully. Uh, you know, so right. it, which is, you know, it, it's kind of a limiting factor when you have something like war on the table and unlimited taxation for the most part, within, mm. to some degree. I mean, obviously, there's going to be something that'll break the camel's back in any country, but, you know, right. it, it makes it a, a way easier for a government to expand territorially. Right. So if a government is more um, focused on, yeah, like maintaining more of that level of production and it's more, you know, mimicking more of a private scenario, basically, they're going to uh have less of a desire to go to war with some other territory or some other government or things like that because they don't want their shit to get destroyed so yep all right um however a privately owned government significantly affects the form and pace of this process so that's what we were just saying owing to its exclusive character and the correspondingly developed class consciousness of the ruled government attempts at territorial expansion tend to be viewed by the public as the ruler's private business to be financed and carried out with his own personal funds, right? So that's another thing. So because they are more likely to see themselves as the ruled, if they see their government going to war, they're like, hey, you're spending our money on war. So they're more likely to reject that. Whereas in like a democratic system, whereas some people might take a nationalistic approach to it and think, you know, this is for the country or, you know, obviously right. they, they always make these wars. And he brought up, I think, even the introduction that, democratic wars tend to become ideological wars. Uh, and right. so, I mean, yeah, it may not, in a certain sense, you know, like a lot of this stuff is about defending the dollar or land or oil or whatever uh, to mm. the people. It becomes this other thing that it's allows like them to get a dollar. Yeah. It allows them to get, to be able to get away with this and essentially have the backing of the people. Whereas in a monarchy, they'd be like, well, I mean, do it if you want, but right. uh, don't, ex don't, don't ask for anything from me. You know, that's kind of like the perception of the people. So. Right. And I was about to say here, the people are going to see that, hey, this is this war is the king going to war and it's to get more for himself and we're paying for it and we're getting nothing for it. So they're more likely to see that as being the case than with like a 
democratic system where you're right. It's like, a, you know, it's more of this like national thing. Like, you know, we're defending America and things of that nature mm -hmm. uh, where they don't see it as, Hey, this is just our government going out there and stealing more and, you know, murdering other people with our money. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's about to say that here. Uh, where am I at? The uh, added territory is the king's. Yeah, the added territory is the king's. And so he, not the public, should pay for it. Consequently, of the two possible methods of enlarging his realm, war and military conquest or contractual acquisition, a private ruler tends to prefer the latter. So that's also what you said. They're more likely to try to acquire um, land um, through yeah, private contracts and things like that rather than war mm. um it must not be assumed that he is opposed to war for he may well employ military means if presented with an opportunity but war typically requires extraordinary resources and since higher taxes and or increased conscription to fund a war perceived by the public as somebody else's will encounter immediate popular resistance and thus pose a threat to the government's internal legitimacy personal ruler will have to bear all or most of the costs of a military venture himself. Accordingly, he will generally prefer the second peaceful option as the less costly one. Instead of through conquest, he'll want to advance his expansionist desires through land purchases or even less costly and still better through a policy of intermarriage between members of different ruling families. For a monarchical ruler, then, foreign policy is enlarged measure family and marriage policy and territorial expansion typically proceeds via the contractual conjunction of originally independent kingdoms so i like again how we brought that up how they they actually are incentivized to be more like family oriented almost where it's like the best option here is actually to have like somebody in our family marry somebody in another family and then we can kind of uh, form an alliance that way and have more territory that way yep it's a peaceful option yeah yeah in contrast to the internal and external moderation of a monarchy, a democratic government implies increased access and the transition from a world of kings to one of democratically elected presidents must be expected to lead to a systematic increase in the intensity and extension of government power and a significantly strengthened tendency toward decivilization. And not really anything to add to that. Uh, a yeah. democratic ruler can use the government apparatus to his personal advantage, but he does not own it. So basically, he, he has all the gain and very little to lose. He cannot right. sell government resources and privately pocket the receipts from such sales, nor can he pass government possessions on to his personal heir. He owns the current use of government resources, but not their capital value. In distinct contrast to a king, the president will want to maximize not total government wealth, but current income. Indeed, even if he wished to act differently, he could not. For as public property, government resources are unsaleable, and without market prices, economic calculation is impossible. Accordingly, it must be regarded as unavoidable that public government ownership results in continual capital consumption. Instead of maintaining or even enhancing the value, value of the government and state as a king would do, a president, uh, the government's temporary caretaker or trustee, will use up as much of the government resources as quickly as possible. For what he does not consume now he may never be able to consume. In particular, a president, as distinct from a king, 
has no interest in not ruining his country. And uh, kind of stop there because this reminds me of the boom bust cycle that we frequently talk about. Uh, for example, a lot of people talk about Trump's great fucking economy is what a lot of people go to. But a lot of people don't realize mm-hmm. we were literally in the boom cycle. And I had been calling it for years yeah. that we were about to hit a bus. COVID hit and we got that fucking bus. Uh, you know, like, I, I'm not quite yeah. sure. I don't think we're back on a boom yet for sure. Uh, we're still deep in the bust. But, yeah. you know, this is how it works. Like, they inflated the shit out of it. They were doing QE like crazy throughout Trump's thing. And mm-hmm. I had known, because it's what, like, typically 8 to 12 years, roughly. You can't predict it per- perfectly. But generally speaking, it's like 8 to 12 years, the, the boom right. and the bust, you know. And, yeah, I uh, think we haven't hit, like, the full bust yet. I think it's kind yeah. of been this, like, prolonged kind of... I don't know if you want to call it a recession, but it's kind of like we're, yeah, like we could be headed to, yeah, like the worst part of it still. But Trump even had said before his presidency that he realized, like he basically said all these things that Austrians were saying about like the fact that, oh, they're printing money and they're, they're papering up and making this look like we have this great economy when we don't. And it's mm-hmm. going to fall at some point. He was saying stuff like that. He legitimately was. He knew this. So he got in and then still was begging the fucking Federal Reserve to keep fucking papering things over because he didn't want to bust during his administration. That way he could just mm-hmm. kick the bucket down to the at least to his second term. So that way he's yeah. like, hey, I got sealed. And that's that's a, one of the best examples I can think of of this this principle he's trying to illustrate here is, you know, the boom bust cycle that we continually deal with. And what happens is a new administration gets in and they just try to paper their way out of it because they're just trying to kick the, the can down the road. Yeah. So one interesting thing here, uh, he's talking about how in like the democratic system, you you have these rulers, the temporary caretakers, they're not incentivized to save any of that for their heirs, but you still have like oligarchies and nepotism where you still have like their heirs and their family wind up rising into those same positions of power, similar positions of power, just because of like name recognition and things like that. But even when they get into power, they're still never actually incentivized to like maintain any of that for their heirs because I mean, they're yeah, basically just stealing so much that they're going to have it anyway, essentially I would say. So you have all of that going on. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. For why would he not want to increase his confiscations? If the advantage of a policy and moderation, the resulting higher capital value of the government estate cannot be reaped privately while the advantage of the opposite policy of higher taxes, the current higher income can be so reaped. For a president, unlike for a king, moderation offers only disadvantages. And I like that sentence. Uh, moreover, with public instead of private government ownership, the second reason for moderation is also gone. The clear and developed class consciousness of the ruled. There can never be more than one supreme ruler, whether king or president. Yet, while entrance into the position of king and promotion to the rank of nobility is systematically restricted under monarchy, in a publicly owned government, anyone, in theory, can become a member of the ruling class or even president. Uh, The distinction between the rulers and the ruled is blurred and the class consciousness of the ruled becomes fuzzy. The -hmm. illusion even arises that such a distinction no longer exists. That with a government, uh, democratic government, no one is ruled by anyone, but everyone instead rules himself. Mm-hmm. Indeed, it is largely due to this illusion that transition from monarchy to democracy could be interpreted as progress and hence as deserving public support. Accordingly, public resistance against government power is systematically weakened. While expropriation and taxation before may have appeared clearly oppressive and evil to the public, they seem much less so, mankind being what it is. Once anyone may freely enter the ranks of those who are at the receiving end. 
love yeah, that, that paragraph. Yeah, that's another great paragraph for sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, we we both like uh, the same paragraphs here. These are, yeah, great paragraphs. Are you talking about what we already talked about where the lines get blurred? So then people wind up seeing the actions of the government as sort of like their own actions or actions that they approve of essentially, which then is also why uh, the government is able to get away with like taxing more and spending way more, but really they're just enriching themselves, which of course we're seeing yeah. all over the place where there's printing money out of the, out of control. And they're, they just make up this shit. Like we have to do this for your own benefit because we just had COVID and now we have to, you know, bail you guys out or whatever, you know, yeah. or we have this, we had nine 11 happen and we have to go to war now to protect you. It's in your own interest. And people are, more likely to just believe that and then the government can just steal more spend more yeah yeah no that is a a really really good paragraph for sure yeah i had something to say but i totally lost dropped it but uh all right uh on to you consequently taxes will increase be it directly in the form of higher taxes or indirectly in that of increased governmental money creation inflation Likewise, government employment and the ratio of government, yeah, the ratio of government employees, public servants to private employees tends to rise, attracting and promoting individuals with high degrees of time preference and low and limited farsightedness. So that, that was actually what I was just about to say. Yeah, we already said say all that. Yeah, I mean, he didn't yeah. kind of say it, but I didn't want to touch on that because the idea is like it blurs the class consciousness, but there's an additional dynamic, which I, I don't think he really necessarily honed in on, but he might a little bit is even if someone does manage to recognize the the actual class distinctions there's still that additional like okay yes. i see these two classes but now they can say oh but i have the ability to be i i could possibly become part of this class so even if they do see through the bullshit they may be like well i want in the bullshit Whereas yeah you're, in, you're, in a, in a you're absolutely system, right yeah. yeah so it has those two effects where you have the people that are sort of the um rooms uh, uh yeah or yeah. the uh i don't know what the word on what's the word means just sort of the um everyday normal people i don't know the useful idiots i guess we'll, yeah. we'll say like you have those people who just you know believe that they believe in the legitimacy the, the legitimacy of government they approve of this so they don't really make that distinction between the ruling class and the rule so the lines are blurred for them but then you have uh a decent amount of the people who do recognize that distinction they have self-interest and maybe they're you know not the most moral people. Like you just said, they're going to, um, yeah, they may be, they're, they're definitely incentivized to just uh, want to join, like join in on the, uh, like get in on the ruling class because they realize that they can do that and there is that distinction. So that is a really good point. Yeah. I don't know if Hoppe brings up that point specifically, but. I mean, he did bring it up, but I don't think he like really, uh, so far, you mean may bring it up in like a later paragraph, but like in what we've yeah. read so far, he didn't like really like uh, make a point of it, but he did bring it up for sure. Mm. Yeah, that is a really good point, though. Yeah. Uh, the combination of these interrelated factors, public ownership of the government plus free entry into it, significantly alters the government's conduct of both its internal and its external affairs. Internally, the government is likely to exhibit an increased tendency to incur debt. While a king is by no means opposed to debt, he is constrained in this natural inclination by the fact that as the government's private owner, he and his heirs are considered personally liable for the payment of all government debts. He can literally go bankrupt or be forced by creditors to liquidate 
government assets. So they're saying that he is more uh, in tune to the fact that he might, uh, yeah, wind up bankrupt and he might, yeah, suffer that collapse. Whereas, yeah, in the form of when you have a democratic form of government, people are like, well, fuck it, because we're going to, we're still going to be able to keep this thing going. Whereas when it's just this one individual or one family that's ruling, they might, you know, they might actually lose that power and they don't want to do that. So their incentives are definitely different. And I do like how he does keep pointing out, sort of hinting at the fact that, hey, I don't think this is the ideal form of government here, monarchy. But what I'm saying is that it's preferable. He does keep saying that. Like he's saying yeah. a king might still go to war. A king might, you know, is still going to tax people, isn't, you know, going to just avoid debt entirely. But and like you see, we have the U.S. has an amount of debt they'll never be able to repay. And they've incurred that whatever it is. It's over yeah. 30 trillion probably now, whereas a king would never be able to get away with that. Yeah, because the debt gets passed on to all of us in theory, although in a certain sense, you know, in a righteous sense, it's, I don't have no goddamn debt. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. But like with a monarchy, it's literally all on the king. So, you know, like if he goes tits up, like what are you going to do when you're completely upside down? And go to the people and essentially in a position of weakness, be like, well, I need all your money. And like, he's like, well, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, in distinct contrast, a presidential government caretaker is not held liable for debts incurred during his tenure of office. Rather, his debts are considered public. And this is what you were just getting at. To be repaid by future equally non-liable governments. If one is not held personally liable for one's debts, however, the debt load will rise and present government consumption will be expanded at the expense of future government consumption. In order to repay a rising public debt, the level of future taxes or monetary inflation imposed on a future public will have to increase. And with the expectation of a higher future tax burden, the non-government public also becomes affected by the incubus of rising time preference degrees for with higher future tax rates, present consumption and short-term investment are rendered relatively more attractive as compared to saving and long-term investment. Yep. Right. Because they know they're going to have more stolen from them in the future. They know they're like, we know that the government is going to keep printing money. So the dollar is going to continue becoming less and less uh, valuable we are more incentivized to spend that doll right now when it's worth more than it will be in the future. So yep. that is yeah, definitely a, a point worth, uh, worth hitting on there. And I, I like that he used the term incubus, uh, yeah. even though, you know, it is a, a band that I used to like back in the day, but also <laughs> I believe an incubus is like a sexy female vampire. That's like sucking the blood out of you. So Pardon me? No, I'm just kidding. That's yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what an incubus is? Or no, yeah. I'm thinking of a succubus. An incubus yeah. is a sexy male version of yeah. it. Uh, I'm thinking of a like succubus. Yeah. I know. More importantly still, the government's conduct as the monopolist of law and order will undergo a systematic change. As explained above, a king will want to enforce a pre-existing private property law. And notwithstanding his own exceptional status, vis-a-vis -vis some of its key provisions, he too will assume and accept private property notions for himself and his possessions, at least insofar as international king-to-king -king relations are concerned. He does not create new law, but merely occupies a pri privileged position with an existing all-encompassing system of private law. I, I underline that line because I, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Like, like right. he's he essentially, like, all he is doing is taking essentially, 
Uh, you can think of it as a free society and then occupying a privileged position with it. So he's just this one vector that is not the free thing and he's kind of occupying a position within it. So Right. It's yeah. it's like far less likely that he's going to be able to uh, like heavily regulate um, like various industries and stuff like that, right? Like he wouldn't be able yeah. to get away with it. Like, I'm going to go tell you that you must – enforce vaccine mandates or something like that and he could but it'll be likely to his detriment he'll i mean even if his people don't rise up or if he doesn't lose legitimacy he's going to decrease production he's going to you know uh which will fuck up his savings you know so on so forth and that these are things that he does not want to occur so yes uh and uh mayor kate said that an incubus is the male form yes succubus is female and it's a folklore sex demon (laughs) so yes thank you all right. And, uh, do, do, do. In contrast with a publicly owned and administered government, a new type of law emerges. Public law, which exempts government agents from personal liability and withholds publicly owned resources from economic management. With the establishment of public law, not merely as law, but as a higher law, a gradual erosion of private law ensues. That is, there is an increasing subordination and displacement of private law by and through public law. Essentially, mm-hmm. once again, this is how it expands. It's kind of like I brought up the point of uh, monarchies and how they slowly kind of become, uh, you know, a, a democracy. Although he did say through war and revolution can occur as well. But I actually think over a, a period of time, they kind of brought into uh, democracies anyways because they start adding more people to the king's court. You know, they start, you know, passing off some of their, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some of their, you know, privileges as a king to other individuals until it's basically not a monarchy anymore uh, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, you're sort of saying that as like the public uh, government, like a democracy, uh, they are able to like pass all these laws that are seen as to be yeah. like in the good of the public. Whereas the king who's more of that privatized owner, like again, like wouldn't really be able to get away with it that much, but he's also not really incentivized to do that because he's more incentivized to kind of let the free market be producing more. Yeah. And the point I was getting at to kind of illustrate in the monarchy thing is like, yes, you have the same effect in it, but it's slow. It's, it's moderated. It's slowed down. But when the democracy, it, they've completely accepted the idea of public, uh, public ownership of the government or whatever. And so then what happens is these laws get passed through these new administrations get created these new administrations get get new people and they, they have their own departments. Those departments say, oh, well, I need another de- sub department within this department and their budgets are ever expanding, uh, so on and so forth. And then as long as these are government workers, they generally have some sort of insulation from the law or any sort of, uh, you know, actual liability aside from uh, maybe losing the job. But even then in the government jobs are usually very hard to lose, even if you are like a civilian contractor or something there, there's usually all sorts of, you know, rules around that. So it, it's kind of the same principle. Uh, it just becomes even more perverse when you're dealing with a public uh, democratic system, because it just, it's, you know, you're with a monarchy, you're starting the small thing that's kind of webbing up from there, whereas you're already here and it's just webbing out a million different ways and becoming expansion exponentially worse as time goes on. Yeah, so it's uh, it's tight and it's becoming looser over time. Yeah. Uh, is this you? Oh, this is me. Uh, rather than upholding private law among the non-government public and exploiting its legal monopolies solely for the purpose of redistributing wealth and income from civil society onto itself, a government ruled by public law will also employ its power increasingly for the purpose of legislation for the creation of new positive civil law with the intent of redistributing wealth and income within civil society. For as a government's caretaker, not owner, 
it is of little or no concern that any such redistribution can only reduce future productivity. Confronted with popular elections and free entry into government, however, uh, the advocacy and adoption of redistributive uh, policies is predestined to become the very prerequisite for anyone wanting to attain or retain a government caretaker position. Accordingly, rather than representing a consumption state uh, the, with public uh, government ownership, complementing and reinforcing the overall tendency towards rising taxes, government employment, and debt, the state will become increasingly transformed into a welfare state. And contrary to its typical uh, portrayal as a progressive development, with this transformation, the virus of rising degrees of time preference will be planted in the midst of civil society and a self-accelerating process A decivilization will be set in motion. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think if that's a good place to stop. I think I may stop there. Uh, I mean, a little bit of a middle of a point, but, you know, it's, we don't have a better place to stop. Uh, I don't get anything to add on that last little paragraph. That was kind of a lot of repeating on what I was saying. Uh, he did add in the welfare state thing. Although mm-hmm. what I was describing is kind of a welfare state because I think government workers are basically essentially welfare whores, let's be real. Uh, although they're expected yeah. to do some sort of something resembling work as opposed to someone actually in welfare. So you increase government workers, you increase people on welfare, and then also on the top you end up people with, you know, uh, corporate welfare and corporate things like welfare. That. Yeah. So yeah, it's, politically connected or getting all that money. So I, I might not agree entirely with the points that he was making in that paragraph. If he's kind of saying that like a, I don't know if this is what he was trying to say, but if he was trying to say that like a public government is more like redistributing wealth amongst the people, because I don't think that's really true and that we know that they are like taking a lot of that money for themselves, but then they are also of course creating a welfare state and distributing some of that money there. So then there are a lot of shifting incentives going on there. Like he's saying, it's, it is definitely shifting uh, time preference. It's making people have higher time preference behavior. But uh, And he is going to point this out later as well. But with the welfare state, obviously, you are going to have people incentivized to like vote for themselves to be given more. Like They're going to vote for more welfare for themselves. And then you have the people who are you know in these corporations and things like that. They're incentivized to also want more of that government welfare and you can get into a whole bunch of stuff with that like you go off on like the stuff that clint has been talking about with esg and things like that where these large corporations you have these incentives to want to get this funding Mm -hmm. well that's redistribution that's the redistribution he was talking about yeah like i think that's exactly what hoppa was saying is what you're saying so yeah i mean i would i would still say that it is mostly redistribution from the ruled upward to the ruling class though which it's which uh, it still which it still is in a monarchy in a monarchy I would say it is pretty much solely that and it's obvious that that's going that is what's going on whereas in a democracy I would say that there's still a ton of that going on but people don't see that it's going on as much like it's, it isn't as obvious or transparent because they see the government sort I mean, of as the government you know foreign by the people you know what I mean I think maybe it's just a, I don't know, maybe you're being a little semantic because I don't know if he was necessarily Mm -hmm. saying it's going to be more to one class or the other. Although personally, I would surmise if you just somehow, you know, tried to make a neat, uh, you know, these are the ruling or elite class uh, and then the rest, you know, like you include, you know, in the rest would be government workers, welfare things. Maybe some people like a corporate welfare of some sort, maybe not like the super tippy top guys, maybe mm-hmm. you would include that in the other group. I would say probably more goes to that 
but uh, that group, the other, as opposed to the elite class, but the elite class still gets shitloaded, but it's just there's less of them, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So, I mean, per person, I'd say they probably get more, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? But I, I think yeah. this is kind of a moot point. I, I don't think the amount of who yeah. goes where really matters. Yeah, it's I mean, the they, idea they are the re- re- yeah. redistribution is occurring and it, right. it, it's incentivized to only increase. Right. So, they are redistributing, yeah, more than like a monarchy would to some of the people, even though they are, I think they are also, you know, obviously enriching themselves as well to the point where they're pretty much eliminating the middle class entirely because they want that ruled class to just be like welfare dependent essentially. And they want themselves to be like sort of the permanent ruling class, if you want to call it that. I don't know. I I mean, I could be getting that wrong to some extent, but. All right, man. Let's go ahead and get how you have you drop your plugs. I do want to see Eddie said he bought the book to follow along. Hell yeah, dude. Nice. Uh, I, I mean, I, I kind of like, I know I don't believe in IP, but I do feel a little bit bad completely reading this book, but it's one of those books that's hard to get. So uh, also like I personally, I, I think this is great because I mean, I, I've, I think Democracy of the God It Fails is, is a great book. And honestly, I think it, it's one of those books that personally for me, I like to consume in different mediums. So I've I've phys- I've uh, physically read it. Well, I'm in the process of physically reading. I'm hit, reading ahead a little bit. I'm also doing this where we're talking about it. I'm I also did the audiobook before. So it's like I'm and, and consuming in multiple mediums because you you devour you pick up on different things when you consume this this content through different mediums. So I hope ideally I think anyone listening to this they should at the very least go listen to the audiobook or you know if you can get the book. I know the book is like one of those ones that's like out of print, so it's kind of hard to get. It's like fifty bucks usually. So yeah. I, mean, I can understand how that's not worth it for everyone, but if you can, I suggest getting the book, uh, you know, cause I, I, I think it's ideally, I think people should, you know, do one, get the commentary as well, mm-hmm. you know, which is essentially what we're providing. Uh, cause yeah, I, I definitely don't, yeah. I'm not trying to take anything from Hoppe. Although I think that, you know, as Kinsella would probably, you know, make the case that, that really if all this does is raise awareness of it and make people more likely to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, devour his content. So. Yeah, and as I said, I, I do think that um, the book is being sold on the Mises store for slightly less than it is on Amazon. I think it might be like 40 or in the 40s. And if you buy from the Mises store, the money's going to the Mises store, you know, going to uh, the Mises Institute and not going to, uh, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> to Amazon or, you know, whatever. Yeah, so. yeah I highly suggest that if you can because uh, – I mean, I understand Amazon's convenient, but if you can, go to Mises. Those guys are the shit. So, you know, support them if you can. So Mises will get it to you pretty quick. It's uh, yeah. it's usually, I think, within about 10 days. So, okay. yeah. 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 Well, all right, man. Yeah. Uh, go ahead and drop your plugs. I know we did them at the, the top, but we'll, we'll do it here at the end, and we'll go ahead and get out of here, man. All right. Yeah. Uh, toad, TPH underscore Toad on Twitter. Uh, Elon, let's go. Bring back Anarcho Toad. Uh, Tower Power R with Jose and with uh, – Cole, Clint Russell, Top Lobsa, and sometimes Reed Coverdale. We're on every Wednesday night at 9, 11 p.m. Eastern. We uh, had an episode last night, another really fun one, where we talked about uh, the Paul Pelosi situation. We talked about Kyrie Irving, and we did a, a new game where we tried to identify uh, crimes based on criminals' mugshots. So uh, it was another fun one. Check out Tower Power Hour. Hell yeah. And if uh, you're watching uh, this live stream uh, this will be pertinent. It'll be coming out on Tuesday. If you're watching this when it's public, I drop it publicly later. Uh, it'll be already out, but I have on Tuesday. Uh, what is that going to be? The date will be the 8th uh, at 9.30 p.m. I'll have me, Clint, 
uh, top uh, and Royce Lopez and maybe Reed, although I think he's doing some of his politics stuff that day. So I think he'll be out for doing another four pony boys. So Royce he's got to be doing it, man, for Jeremy Kaufman in New Hampshire. But yeah, uh, Royce Lopez of Revenge of the Nerds. He's, he's a fun guy. So it'll be a good episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you become a patron, you become the $5 level. Uh, actually, no, I think I do it for the $2 level. You can uh, you can even drop questions in there for like a mailbag thing for those because uh, those are not behind the paywall. But I, uh, you know, give you a little incentive for the four pony boys. But yeah, um, you can follow me on YouTube, all the major auto packages, Odyssey as well. This is a No Way Jose show. You follow me on Twitter at Senor Jose 2020. If you want to support me, patreon.com, just No Way Jose 2020. Like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Yeah, please show us around. Uh, you know, for people who don't want to, I don't know, who prefer podcasts, I guess, I mean, this can be the way to devour uh, Democracy the God that Failed. Because this is one of those books a lot, a lot of people, a lot of us talk about, but very few of us read. Mm. Uh, so, and I think it's one that yeah. really that we need to. I think it's a really, really, really good one. Mm. Uh, but yeah, uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get out of here. Appreciate your time. We'll probably do another one roughly a week. And uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, we'll be finishing up this chapter. And uh, it gets even yeah. juicier. But all right, man, yeah. uh, we're out of here. All right, peace, peace out. out.